What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. If you've got a question about the Catholic faith, we would love to uh, hear from you today. Our phone number is this, 833-288-3986. That's 833-288-EWTN. Now, if you uh, are listening to us outside of North America, please dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. We're going to lead off with an email in a moment here. The address is ctc at ewtn.com, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Michael McCall is our call screener today. Jeff Burson handling social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, all you have to do is put that question in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and we would love to answer your question on today's program. I'll give you that phone number one more time. I know that uh, phones sometimes get very full very quickly. So while we have an opportunity, call now, 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you getting along today? You know what? I'm doing great. How is your Advent progressing? Are oh, you, you know, it's uh, we're, we're coming along, coming along. I was uh, filling in uh, yesterday for Jack on um, uh, Open Line with Father Wade Menezes, and I said, Father, what is your favorite liturgical season and he said well you know uh the triduum which is you know the three days leading up to uh um easter easter sunday that is his favorite but his second favorite is advent and i think there's a lot of good feelings around advent even though technically it is a kind of a penitential season i you know i always thought that the, the being a priest during triduum would be grueling because their liturgical schedule during that period is just, I mean, it's, it's, it's nonstop. I, mean, I don't think they sleep for three days. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to lead off with a very interesting question from um, uh, an, anonymous, an anonymous caller. I was looking for the name, and then I finally saw the word anonymous. Here it is. Why do Jehovah's Witnesses say that Catholic is a phony religion? Um, yeah, because we're not Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> I mean that, that that's the short answer. I mean the, the 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 Jehovah's Witnesses are a sectarian movement that that has a, a an aberrant and idiosyncratic uh, theological tradition that's that's at odds with pretty much all the rest of Christendom, and uh, and they believe that anybody outside of their particular sect is uh, is anti-Christian. I mean it, it 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 is it is the epitome of sectarian religion. Well, there you go. Yeah. Okay. And we also have this question here. This is from uh, William in North Carolina. What are your thoughts regarding using a screen or screens and digital content during Mass if used prudently? Right. So, you know, I, I personally um, try not to uh, really take an issue on what you might call the liturgy wars, except I, I do take issue with dogmatists who believe that there is there there's only one right style of Christian liturgy and that it's theirs, whatever that might be. And so, you know, I 
I um uh, I I celebrate and welcome say traditionalists that want to attend mass in the extraordinary rite. They like the Latin mass. Uh, have at it, boys. You know, have a good time. <laughs> get edified. Go to heaven. Grow close to Jesus. But please don't insist that that's the only legitimate way to go to mass. Mm. I uh, you know I have uh, I have no problems if people want to have a, a go to a charismatic mass and have livelier music and maybe some some restrained use of the gifts of the spirit and they, they enjoy that uh, spirituality. I, again, I have at it, you know, have a great time, get close to Jesus, love your neighbor, grow in virtue, but please don't tell us that that's the only way that you can legitimately worship God. I mean, the Catholic faith has always had liturgical and devotional variety, uh-huh. and the, the one thing I would insist on is that whatever you do, you must follow the rubrics that the Church has promulgated, because the Church makes laws about Christian liturgy, um, and there's some, you know, leeway for interpretation from local bishops, but uh, you must do what the Holy See commands, and you must you must be in accord with the mind of your bishop. But as long as you're within the law and within the mind of your bishop, then um, then the dictum of St. Augustine should hold, and that is in the essentials, unity, and everything else, charity. Okay. Appreciate that. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Christian has a question via YouTube. My co-worker has been asking me, what is Christmas? And is it the actual birth date of Jesus? What, as a Catholic, can I tell him? Christmas is the liturgical feast when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. Was Jesus actually born on December 25th? Probably not. And there's probably no way to know the answer to that question. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, really could be uh, any any time, I but guess. But it doesn't matter. It really it, doesn't matter. The, the issue is that you, we, you, if you're going to get the entire Christian world to celebrate a common feast day in, in honor of some event in our Lord's life, you have to pick a day. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and history and tradition have settled on December 25th. There's, there's no claim being made that this is somehow given to us by, by divine revelation. We're not making that claim. We're just saying this is, the, this is the historical date on which the Church celebrates the birth of Christ. The important thing is to celebrate it. Exactly. And this one from Jake. Uh, what is the difference between the Catholic and Protestant view of the Atonement, and why does it matter? Oh, yeah. Wow, what a great question. Love this one. A uh, big difference. So the Protestant view of the Atonement, and look, there's more than one Protestant view of the Atonement. There are lots of different Protestant views, but I'm going to speak about a very mainstream view, the one associated with the Calvinist tradition, uh, that is called penal substitution. That, that's probably the intuition that most people in North America have about the death of Christ. And it's the idea that God punished Jesus for sins that Jesus did not commit in order that he could acquit the guilty and credit to them a righteousness that they did not earn. Right? This is Luther's idea of an alien imputed righteousness. God uh-huh. punishes Jesus for your sins, and he, he credits you for Jesus' good works. And so the cross is, uh, is a judicial punishment inflicted by God on Christ. That is not the Catholic view of the atonement, because it is, A, unbiblical. Jesus, the scriptures don't teach that. Uh, and it makes God unjust, because uh, anyone, a judge that would punish the innocent and acquit the guilty, is by definition an unjust judge. It also involves kind of absurdities about the relationship between father and son that would seem to suggest the heresy of Nestorianism. And I'll come back to this and other topics after the break. All right, uh, Jake, thanks so much uh, for your email. Meanwhile, lines are open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Call now for Call to Communion.
It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. We do need to uh, finish up this question from Jake, who sent us an email. And uh, I know we got started before the break. What is the difference between the Catholic and Protestant view of the Atonement, and why does it matter? Yeah, so before the break, we detailed the Protestant view of the Atonement, which has God punishing the innocent and acquitting the guilty, and regards the Atonement as a, as a penal substitution, substitutionary punishment. And the Catholic view of the Atonement, which we didn't get to, but now we're going to get to, okay. which is that the death of Christ is a sacrifice of satisfaction, which is emphatically not a penal substitution. And the best way to see this is think about what was happening in the Old Testament when an Israelite brought a sacrifice to the temple. He didn't bring the sacrifice so that God could pour out his wrath on an irrational animal, on a lamb or a goat or a bull. He brought the sacrifice because he, by doing this he was offering up something of value. Right? It wasn't the death of the animal per se right. that propitiated God. It was the gift, the element of the gift. This is why um, uh, uh, David could say, for example, in, uh, in 2 Samuel, I think it's 24, I uh, refuse to offer the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. Right? That's exactly what the death of Christ is in the Protestant scheme, a sacrifice that costs you nothing. But the, the Catholic idea of sacrifice is that there is a gift. There's an element of self-donation in a sacrifice, and it's that element of gift that renders it pleasing to God. So it's not a penal substitution. In the death of Christ, Jesus offers something of an infinite value, namely his own, his own divine life, and that in recompense for that, God pours out on the body of Christ, the Church, the gifts of grace and the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins. So a very, very different way of conceiving the relationship of Father to Son and a different way of conceiving of the believer's uh, appropriation of that gift. Okay. Appreciate that. Thanks so much uh, for your email. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We're going to get to the phones in just a second. Let me tell you about uh, something wonderful from EWTN's Vatican Bureau. You can now watch all of the important events from Rome even if you don't have access to a TV set. Using the latest technology, we have made it possible to watch the latest news from the Holy See, all delivered directly to your home via live streams. You can watch us on EWTN's YouTube channel, follow us on Facebook and Instagram. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Lori in snowy Vermont listening to us on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hello, Lori, what's on your mind today? Well, good morning. I'm having a wonderful snowy day here in Vermont. All right. Hopefully you're warmer than, than we are. <laughs> um, I just always was curious as to why. I'm, I'm sort of a confirmed as an adult Catholic, but um, I'm always wondering why there are no Bibles in the Catholic churches, at least not any of the ones that I've been in. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the question. So let me let me qualify that a little bit. Any Catholic church that you go in is, of course, going to have a copy of the Book of the Gospels that the priest will will read from when he reads the, the priest or the deacon when he reads from the Gospels. It's also going to have a copy of the lectionary that has all the other biblical readings that we that we uh, recite at every mass. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of scripture that's proclaimed in the Catholic mass. And uh, in terms of the physical copies of the books, you have at least the lectionary and the book of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. I have been in Catholic churches where you'll actually find a complete copy of the Bible in the, in the, in the back of the pew in front of you. That's not common, however. And, and the reason why, and you will see that in Protestant churches, is because 
in many Protestant churches, the way that they conceive of worship is specifically the proclamation and commentary upon the Word of God. And so in a sermon, in a Protestant sermon, it's not at all uncommon for the pastor to say something like, now everybody turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, you know, chapter 6, verse 3, and let's read together the following. And then the, the pastor might make some very specific exegetical observations about the text, and you know, this word here and this sentence there, and, and uh, not always, but it, it, historically you would see a lot of that in, uh, in, in Protestantism. Uh-huh. That's just not what Catholics mean by Christian worship. So uh, the principal act of Catholic worship is not a kind of exegetical engagement in the text of the Bible. Um, rather, the, the principal act of worship for a Catholic is the act of sacrifice, specifically the sacrifice of the Eucharist, the offering of the body and blood of Christ uh, in the form of the Holy Eucharist to God the Father in reparation for the sins of the world and our, in our determination to join ourselves to what is displayed therein, to make our lives lives of sacrifice like, like that of Christ that's displayed for us there on the altar. And the rest of the, of the Mass, the rest of the worship service that we participate in, is understood to be a kind of covenant renewal ceremony. And if you remember back in, uh, in Ezra and Nehemiah, when the Israelites came back from the exile, and Ezra pronounced the law of God to the people. And he read the law, and then the people listened, and at the end of the reading, they all pronounced, yeah, we'll do that. We, we, we give ourselves to the covenant. There's a uh-huh. sort of covenant ratification renewal ceremony. That's what the Mass is. And so when the, when the Gospels and the, and the Scriptures are proclaimed to us, and that is, that's the way we conceive of it, so the lector and the priest or deacon proclaim to us the word of the Lord, and then the second half of the Mass, which is the Liturgy of the Eucharist, is a kind of is our affirmation of that. We start with uh, the recitation of the Creed, where we profess the faith that's just been proclaimed to us, uh-huh. um, and then uh, and then make our prayers and intercessions, and then of course join ourselves to this divine oblation of the of the Holy Eucharist. And so the Scriptures have a very important role in the Catholic Mass, uh, that of proclaiming the Word of God to us, that we then adhere to. Uh, but it's not necessary to sort of dig down in that kind of fine exegetical detail. Mm-hmm. There's a place for that in Catholic life, but but the worship service is not the principal place that we would do that. So many Catholic churches, for example, might have Bible studies on some night of the week and, yes. and encourage you to go. Then you can get down into the chapter and verse and do that kind of exegetical work, or or you can do it on your own if you if you like or get any of the wonderful commentaries that are published by Catholic authors. So we definitely want people to engage in the Bible and to do so critically and, and, and enthusiastically sure. and, and to spend their lives in that kind of engagement. It's just not what we mean by Christian worship. Lori, is that helpful for you? Yeah, that does explain a lot. Okay. I just, um, I guess my thought process was while I'm sitting there for the, if I get there early for 10 or 15 minutes, but I mean, I can read in the Missalette, obviously, plenty of uh, passages in sure. the Bible. Sure, sure. Um, that, that clears it up. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Lori, thanks so much for your call, and that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. Several lines open for you, 833 833- 288-3986. Call to communion on this Wednesday here in the middle of Advent on EWTN Radio. Here's a question now from Erica. I write to a family member of mine who is in prison. He has since become a Buddhist. Oh, this is wonderful news since I believe this path is far and above what could have become of him in such a environment. I would like to be able to discuss this with him in more depth. Is there a book on Buddhism that you would recommend? Thanks, Erica. 
Yeah, wow, thanks. So um, the Catholic position on Buddhism uh, is that there are wisdom traditions in every culture and many cultures of the world that can provide consolation in the face of, of life's mysteries and existential challenges that can help build up a kind of communitarian sense among people that are practitioners. It can, it can build up their commonality and their regard for one another's uh, intrinsic humanity, uh, that, uh, that it can provide, it can help provide um, insight into handling moral and, and, uh, and, exi uh, and existential problems. And so you'll find this kind of language about Buddhism in, in all kinds of traditions in, in Catholic literature on that, on that uh, uh, religious community. Um, however, Catholics obviously think that there are things that are essentially lacking from the Buddhist path, in particular the doctrine of God and the person of Jesus Christ, the church that he founded in the sacramental system, and, and the explicit teaching and experience of the life of grace that are offered to us through those medium. So the Catholic Church, while it has a respect for uh, the Buddhist tradition and other traditions as well, whether the Taoist tradition, the Confucian tradition, the Hindu tradition, you name it, we have a respect for all of these. Um, we're not relativists about it. We, we don't think that it, it doesn't make a difference. You know, we don't think that any old tradition is as good as another. We really do think that the Catholic faith was given to us by God, by divine revelation, and so that's what we call all people to participate in. Um, but in terms of, you know, how could you educate yourself more on Buddhism to have uh, a respectful dialogue, uh, there are there are Catholic writers that have uh, contributed a lot a lot of literature to this. Um, Cardinal uh, Henri de Lubac, uh, who um, his cause for canonization has recently been promoted by the French bishops. We'll see if anything comes of that or not. <laughs> um, but he was a very influential Catholic theologian of the 20th century, and his writing had an influence on the Second Vatican Council. Um, de Lubac was a student of Buddhism, and he published a book, and the title of the book, I'll, I'll come up with it in a minute, um, De Lubac, uh, Buddhism. Let's see if I can come up with it. Um, oh, da -da -da -da. it'll take me a minute, um, so I can't get the title, but you'll find it. Sure. Uh, he wrote a book on specifically on Amidism, or Japanese Pure Land Buddhism, which is a very unique sect of Buddhism. Uh -huh. um, the, uh, the Catholic monastic um, Thomas Merton, who um, got a little squirrely in his later years, but uh, but he was deeply engaged in Buddhist literature in the 1960s, and his Asian journal uh, would recount some of the thoughts and reflections of a practicing Catholic religious as he sojourned in that tradition and met many of its luminaries. Um, and of course, the the the, the non-Catholic literature on Buddhism is. Uh, is, is massive. I mean, there's a huge literature on Buddhism in the modern world. I mean, some of the authors that you might take a look at, uh, Stephen Batchelor, I mean, who is himself a Buddhist practitioner, was uh -huh. famous a number of years ago for writing a book called um, uh, Buddhism Without Belief. Um, and, um, uh, uh, you know, getting a hold of some Buddhist literature itself, some of the ancient scriptures of Buddhism is obviously a, a helpful way. The Tipitaka is their, is their major canon of Buddhist literature. Um, and uh, there are Buddhist translation societies that will put out, you know, various Buddhist sutras and scriptures for people to 
uh, to read, and so you can familiarize yourself that way. And and obviously, you know, a, 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 a reference guide like even Wikipedia uh, can give you some of the foundational concepts and, and and take you other places. So, I mean, honestly, if you if you Google search Buddhism, you're going to be so overwhelmed with uh, literature <laughs> that you won't even know where to begin. Yeah, Erica, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here now is uh, BJ in Paris, Texas, listening to us online ewtn.com. And a blessed Advent to you, BJ. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, thank you. Uh, so, I've been reading a lot about, well, I shouldn't say a lot, I've just been dabbling into uh, what the Protestants view, uh, faith and works. Uh, they don't believe that works can uh, help save you. Uh, I've, I've, I've read that the book of Romans in Romans 3.28 and the book of James uh, to, uh, book, the book of James 2, uh, 21 through, I think it's 22, they both talk about faith and works. And uh, in my Catholic Bible, when I read in Romans three twenty eight, it says works of the law, but the Protestant version that I read just says works. So I wonder if Romans is talking about a different type of works than what it says in the book of James about faith and works. But they both talk about Abraham and faith and, yes. and works. Yes, oh boy, do I have an answer for you. <laughs> oh, this, yeah, yes, you're, you're absolutely on the right track. So, uh, you reference Romans chapter 3. I would highly recommend you go take a really hard look at Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 is the hinge on which the entire book holds together. The controversy that Paul is addressing is whether or not Gentiles who become believers in Jesus must also follow the law of Moses. That is the question that he's answering. Do you have to follow the law of Moses if you're a Gentile believer in Jesus? And what Paul says in Romans chapter 2 is that merely having the written prescriptions of the Mosaic law, and if like I hand you a law book, handing you a law book does not ipso facto make you holy possessing the law. Even going through the ritual prescriptions of the law book will not change your character necessarily. And the way he puts it in Romans 2.13 is he says, it's not hearing the law, but obeying the law by which a man will be declared righteous. And then if you slip down to verses 25 to 29, he really gets to the thrust of it. And he says that, that if your heart is changed, if your character has been transformed, which Paul thinks happens through faith in Jesus— then what he calls the righteous requirements of the law, the dikaiomatitudnamu, that's the Greek word, are, full, are fulfilled in you, right? And he distinguishes that from the so-called ergonamu, Greek word meaning works of the law. So he says the works of the law do not justify you. However, if you have faith in Christ and your heart's transformed, then you will successfully complete the quote-unquote righteous requirements of the law. Mm. And what he seems to be arguing is that things like love and justice and mercy and fidelity and temperance and charity and obedience to parents and these kinds of the life of the Spirit and the life of the virtues, these are things that the Spirit of God works within you through faith. Those are the righteous requirements of the law, the kind of spirit of the law, if you will, that you can fulfill 
even if you don't attend to things like circumcision or dietary laws and that sort of business. And so that's, that's what faith in Christ does. This is what Paul teaches and also what the Catholic faith teaches. Faith brings the gift of grace that transforms our character and makes it possible for us to live this, this holy and righteous life, even though we don't follow the quote-unquote works of the law, those things that distinguish Jew from Gentile. Now, um, th- th- that's not the way Protestants read it. Protestants believe that works of the law just means any kind of moral act. And so they say, well, you're not justified by doing any kind of moral act. Mm. That's false. That, that's, that's totally contrary to, to Paul's meaning. Uh-huh. Works of the law in this context means the Jewish works of the law, like circumcision and so forth. There's a great book on the topic by Matthew J. Thomas called Paul's Works of the Law in the Perspective of Second Century Reception. It details how the earliest Christians understood this phrase, works of the law, in the context of the book of Romans. All right, you may want to check that book out. Now, BJ, thanks so much for your call from Paris, Texas. Hey, we've got uh, lots more coming up in the last half of the program. You can jump in as well at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion. It's called to Communion on this Wednesday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. We have some lines available for you right now. Call now, 833-288-EWTN if you have a question about the Catholic faith. Perhaps you'd like to enlighten us. Uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Well, 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, the great Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting, celebrating 12 years with us. They are now on 12 stations throughout the state of Oklahoma. Congratulations to our friend Jeff Fennell and everybody at Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting from your friends here at EWTN. Radio. That phone number again, 833-288-EWTN. Cindy has a very tender question here. This is, uh, it just, it gets me for some reason. Dr. Anders, I'm thinking about what heaven will be like for babies and children who die very young. Is there any church teaching or scripture that describes what heaven will be like for the unborn who die by abortion or children who die as babies? Will they be able to know things and comprehend like an adult? Or will they remain babies in heaven, too, with limited understanding and limited maturity? Thank you. Cindy. Um, Yes, thank you. I really appreciate the question. So we all are babies, intellectually, cognitively, in comparison to what we will experience in the beatific vision. Uh, The Catholic position is that the saints in heaven, the blessed dead, will know all things in God. Paul says, by contrast, we see as through a glass darkly now, then we will see face to face. And John writes that we will be like him when he is revealed, that our whole character, our personality, our cognition will be radically transformed. And the kind of knowledge we will have will not be simply the kind of empirical or sensorial knowledge that we have now. It will be an intuitive knowledge of God in his essence that will contain all things. So, you know, what do I mean by that? I mean, there are certain things that we know immediately and intuitively, like, say, for example, that you know the existence of your own mind, right? You don't have to reason to the existence of your own mind. It's something that you know immediately, right? Whereas, you know, knowing what you had for breakfast this morning would require, or what your wife had for breakfast this morning, would require kind of sensible experience and then the act of memory, Mm -hmm. right? Our knowledge of God will be more like the first than the second. It will be kind of an immediate, intuitive knowledge of God in his essence, that will not have to pass through the medium of, uh, of, of the senses or the empirical. Now, because the Church also teaches that in the resurrection we will have physical bodies, we will have bodies, 
we will have empirical knowledge in, in, uh, in the next life. We'll have sensorial knowledge. What that will be of, I have no idea. Eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard what God has in store. But we will have an embodied existence, and so you'll have some sensible knowledge of what that embodied existence is. I think the only difference between the knowledge of, say, an aborted baby or an infant and, uh, and an adult would be they would obviously have a different scope respecting memory of their earthly life. Mm. Right. So, so the blessed dead in heaven will remember their earthly life. Uh-huh. But again, it'll to all of us, it'll seem like the blink of an eye. Sure. Saint Teresa of Avila once wrote that uh, all of our life will seem like one night in a bad hotel. <laughs> I love that. Appreciate that. And uh, Cindy, thank you so much for your wonderful email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Back to the phones now at eight three three two eight eight EWTN. Here is Mark in Port O'Connor, Texas, listening today on Sirius XM channel one thirty. Mark, uh, a blessed. Advent to you. What's going on today, sir? Oh, uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I came across y'all's show a couple of weeks ago, and I've been listening. And I come from a Baptist tradition, kind of raised, you know, once saved, always saved. But I've always kind of questioned that, just based on different things that I see in Scripture. And I was wondering, what are some areas or things that I could go read that would give me a better understanding of the Catholic understanding of Yeah, sure. I really profoundly appreciate the question. So when a Baptist uses the phrase, once saved, always saved, or perhaps if he says something like, hey, brother, have you been saved? What that means to a Baptist is that there is a transaction that you could enter into with God in this life. And typically for a Baptist, that's going to be professing Christ or inviting Jesus into your heart or answering an altar call, something like that. That in virtue of that transaction— that God has uh, promised you that in exchange that you will be guaranteed uh, heaven when you die. And that's typically what they mean. So salvation, it's, it's, are you saved is really a catchphrase for uh, do you have assurance that when you die you'll go to heaven, All right? And I would say that use of the word save is not entirely biblical, right? Because Jesus talks about salvation as something that is future to us, And so, for example, in Matthew 24, he'll say that those who persevere to the end will be saved. Salvation really is being saved from hell and damnation and sin. So we're not really—there's a sense in which none of us are really saved until we've escaped this veil of tears that we call human life and and enter into glory. So the real question is not, are you saved or are you not saved? The real question is, can a person have knowledge right now? Could you do something right now, like, say, answer an altar call? that would give you an infallible certainty that when you die, you're going to heaven. And again, I understand why Protestants or Protestants think that the answer to that question is yes, but I would challenge anyone who says that, that, that Scripture really doesn't give any indication that that's the way it works, right? Um, Jesus certainly doesn't. I mean, Christ says explicitly, Matthew 25, many people will come to me on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, but I'll say I never knew you because you didn't feed the hungry or clothe the naked or give drink to the thirsty or visit the sick and the imprisoned. So, I mean, to me, that sounds like a repudiation of the Baptist position, right? Or the once saved, always saved position. Uh-huh. I go to Jesus and he says, why should I let you into heaven? And I say, well, well, because I professed faith in Christ in 1972 at a Billy Graham crusade. Jesus says, well, where did I say that that was the criteria for getting in? I never said that, right? What I said was, 
you better feed the hungry, clothe the naked, give drink to the thirsty, visit the sick and the imprisoned, and so forth. Then I can say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. So, so to be saved is for Christ to render that verdict upon our life uh-huh. and for us to go to heaven when we die. So then what, what do you have to do to get there? And as soon as I know the Baptist hears me say, well, it sounds like, Andrew, it sounds like you're advocating salvation through good works. Doesn't the Apostle Paul have something to say about good works? And didn't, the, didn't Romans, didn't Galatians say that a man is saved by grace through faith and not by works of the law? Isn't that what Paul said? So what do you do with that, Anders? Here's what I do with that. Um, Paul tells us very clearly that the works of the law, ergo namu in Greek, mm-hmm. do not establish a man as just before God. That's very clear. Um, and, and he tells us why in Romans 2.13. He says it's not hearing the law, rather it's obeying the law by which we will declare it righteous. Problem is, none of us really obeys the law without grace. That's the key difference. Mm. Without grace, we can't keep the moral demands of the law. But, Paul goes on to say in Romans 2, 25 to 29, that if your heart has been circumcised by the Holy Spirit, if you've been changed, then you fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Romans 8 details what that looks like. This is life in the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, these kinds of things that flow out from the principle of a transformed life enable one to genuinely be able to fulfill the demands of the law. It comes as a gift of grace. It's through faith. God gives it to us by his Holy Spirit. But we really can cooperate with that and live that holy life whereby we visit the sick and the imprisoned and give drink to the thirsty and feed the hungry and so forth so that when we go to heaven, there's a the, the positive verdict upon our life. Is it by works? Well, in the sense that God works the works within us. St. Augustine, who's a great Catholic writer from the 4th century, said God crowns his own gifts. Mm. So he, he pours his love into your heart. That's what Romans 5, 5 says. God's love is poured into our heart. Then God works this work within us, this transformation in character and charity. And then he turns around and rewards us for the very things that he created within us. This view of salvation is, uh, is deeply biblical, and it, it enables us to take Christ at his, at his word, to take him at, G- at face value. Jesus says, if you give a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, you will not lose your reward. He says, if you pray in secret, you will not lose your reward. If you give alms in secret, you will not lose your reward, unlike those who do those things to be seen by men. Yeah. So Christ is constantly admonishing us to good works, and then he promises to re- reward us for those, for those good works. What St. Paul tells us is that those works that we do, whereby Christ rewards us, are done through the power of God's Holy Spirit. They're done as a result of grace. They're done through the gift that comes through faith. So we really believe in salvation by faith. We really believe in salvation by grace. But it's a grace that works charity within us so that we really do fulfill the works of the law. Um, we really do fulfill, I say it's moral demands, the righteous requirements of the law. And, uh, and in terms of having confidence, you know, some people say, well, can you know for sure you're going to heaven? Well, the Catholic faith teaches that we know for sure where there's grace. Right, and, and Christ says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have life. That's in John chapter 6. And so for a Catholic, this, these are the sacraments of the Church, uh-huh. these, these means that Jesus gave us of remaining in fellowship with him. And so we, we take seriously the words of Christ when he says, if anyone perseveres to the end, he will be saved. He's given us the means to persevere. So he's given us the Church, he's given us his teaching, he's given us the sacraments, he's given us his grace, he's given us the Holy Spirit. Through these things, we can, in fact, Per- persevere. We can participate. We can last until the end, and then and then we'll go to heaven when we die. So we have we don't have infallible certainty of our future life in heaven because it's also possible to get off that path. 
Of course, you know, First Peter, uh, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 2 says it's better not to have entered the way of righteousness than to enter and then turn back. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 speaks of those who enter the way of righteousness and then turn back and crucify the Son of God all over again. Over and over again, these admonitions in the Bible against apostasy, against starting out in the life of faith and then leaving it. So we take very seriously that it's possible to get off the path. And if you do, you, you, you know, Hebrews says there's no sacrifice for sins left. If you get off the path, you're off the path. You've got to get back on the path. No guarantee that you'll be saved if you get off the path. So how do you know you'll go to heaven? Well, stay on the path. Yeah. Stay on the path. It's sort of like the question, you know, can I know for sure that I won't leave my wife? Yes, by not leaving my wife. Anders, do you know for sure you'll never get divorced? Only by not getting divorced. <laughs> That's, I mean, does that leave me, like, bereft of hope? Absolutely not. Right? Catholics have hope. They have the theological virtue of hope. So we have great confidence in salvation, great confidence in the mercy of Christ, great confidence in the grace of Christ. But we don't have presumption. We don't mm. presume upon Christ's mercy to save us in spite of our own rebelliousness and our decision to walk away from him. Is that helpful to you? Does that make sense? Yes, it is. Are, are there any readings or books or anything that um, help? Oh, yeah, tons, tons. So in, in terms of actually getting your head wrapped around the doctrine of grace, um, uh, there is a, is a, a book—actually, I'm going to give you a book by a Protestant— uh, the book is by Christer Stendhal. He was a Harvard professor of New Testament called Paul Among Jews and Gentiles that, um, that gives a totally different perspective on what Paul is all about than what you might have gotten, you know, in the Protestant church. Um, uh, in terms of, I'm trying to think of, uh, Jimmy Aiken, Jimmy Aiken of Catholic Answers has a book, I think it's called The Salvation Controversy. I think it is. Yeah, and that that may be where I would start. Why don't you start with Jimmy Aiken's book, The Salvation Contract, because it's written at a popular level. Chris uh, Stendhal's book's more academic. Yeah, go ahead and get Jimmy Aiken's book, The Salvation Controversy. Jimmy A-I, or A-K-I-N. A-K-I-N. A-K-I-N, and uh, you can probably get that through catholicanswerscatholic.com. And if you uh, need more information on what we talked about today, Mark, you can go to our podcast. Charles will have that posted for you in a couple of hours. Go to EWTN.com slash radio and look for the words uh, Podcast Central. It's called a communion here on EWTN. This weekend, be sure to join us for the Spirit World. That's coming up at 11 a.m. Eastern. We encore it uh, Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern. This weekend, Debbie Giorgiani and religious demonologist Adam Bly will be talking about interior joy for the third week of Advent, and uh, they'll also take your calls and answer your emails all about the supernatural. Do check it out this weekend, Saturday, 11 a.m. Eastern, Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Zach in Colorado, listening to us on YouTube this afternoon. Hello, Zach. What's on your mind today, sir? Hey, how's it going? I'm a big fan of you guys. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, I have a New Age pagan friend who believes Christianity was kind of used for iconoclasm to destroy history uh, and also to, like, control people and uh, things of that nature. Um, He's like a New Age pagan kind of guy, and I'm wondering if there's any reading material uh, you might recommend for uh, people like that that I can better understand him so I can have better conversations with him. Um, Yeah, yeah. So there is a book by EWTN's very own Mitch Pacwa, Call Catholics and the New Age, that that will give some some consideration to you know to that to those kind of positions. And this is a, a Orthodox Catholic priest. Orthodox in this small o. He's a Catholic yes, priest. Yes. He's he's a, like a believing, faithful Catholic priest, who who once uh, 
flirted around with new agey people and then, you know, saw the error of his ways and came back to a more sound understanding of Catholicism. He writes about that in his book, Catholics in the New Age. Um, in terms of a kind of a good Catholic presentation of the doctrine of Christ in his person, you might look at Thomas Joseph White's book, The Light of Christ. Hmm. Um, uh, to the charge that Catholics, that the Catholic faith was used to control people or to destroy history, um, so you might take a look at um, Tom Wood's book, How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization. Great book. Or Tom Holland's book, Dominion. And here's why I recommend those books, that um, anytime you have a social revolution, and Christianity was definitely a social revolution, you are advocating for a change of culture. And, and I would, I mean, I would freely admit that the Catholic faith advocated for a change of culture, and that would include the destruction of some older ways of being human. But what are some of the things that the, that the Catholic faith advocated eliminating? Well, one of the things that Catholic faith wanted to eliminate was um, gladiatorial contests. So did we, did we oppose gladiatorial contests, the slaughter of human beings for the entertainment of crowds? You better believe it. You better believe it. And whereas, you know, Roman antiquity, the building of, uh, of arena for gladiatorial battles was a common part of ancient Roman civic planning. Uh-huh. You're not going to find that, say, in um, in uh, in uh, in the Christian Middle Ages of the modern world. You know, I mean, outside of the the MMA ring, you know, which is probably <laughs> the nearest you know modern uh, uh, equivalent. That's that's ceased to be a part of human culture because the Catholic faith eliminated it. Here's another thing that the Catholic faith fought against: a, a cultural tradition that we eliminated. Um. Uh, sexual slavery uh, and the subjugation of women and remo- and uh, and denying that they had the right to dispose of their bodies, whether in marriage or not, right? That's something the Catholic faith deeply opposed, and and it was ridiculed by the pagan world for opposing that. So, um, uh, the Catholic faith has always taught, it's been in canon law from the beginning, that a coerced a coerced marriage is invalid. That women have the right of refusal; they do not have to marry against their will. And if you attend to the Catholic Mass, we have a prayer in the Mass called the Canon of the Mass that's prayed for the consecration of the Eucharist, in which we venerate martyrs and great saints and heroes of old. And some of the first names that are, that are commemorated are the names of virgin martyrs, women Catholics who refused uh, forced marriages and preferred the life of consecrated virginity and were killed by pagans in consequence. Um, uh, so another practice that the Catholic faith opposed was um, um, female infant exposure. It was a oh, common yeah. practice in the ancient world when girls were born to literally just throw them out onto the streets or leave them in a field to die. The Catholic Church said, no, we're not going to do that because baby girls are made in the likeness and image of God. Um, abortion and contraception were practices that the Catholic faith opposed in antiquity, and though those are, uh, those are cause celebra among modern New Age feminists, when the Catholic faith opposed them, they opposed things like beating women until they until they aborted. Right? I mean, the kinds of things are jumping up and down on the stomach of pregnant women to cause them to abort. And typically, it wasn't women who were choosing these procedures. It was men that didn't want to be bothered with, with the illegitimate issue that would, you know, beat women until they aborted. And contraception in the ancient world, I'm not going to tell you what they did for contraception in the ancient world because— it is so vile that we would probably be censured if I mentioned it right on the air. 
Um, it was very harmful to female bodies, and women were not fans of the procedure at all, at all, at all, at all, at all. And so when the Catholic faith came along and began preaching, say, the dignity of women, their right to choose marriage or not, um, their freedom from forced abortion, sterilization, contraception, uh, opposition to female exposure, women were the first people to sign up for the Christian faith. There are vastly more women joined. Uh, Rodney Stark, the, the sociologist Rodney Stark, has written a lot on, on this and similar topics. So some of his books, and he's not a Catholic, by the way, um, his book, The Rise of Christianity, um, uh, would be one to consider, or uh, or his book, Bearing False Witness, about the false caricatures of Catholicism in the ancient world. I mean, a modern modern uh, mischaracterizations of Catholicism in the ancient world. So there, there's a bunch for you. So you've got you've got two books by Rodney Stark. You've got Tom Holland's book, Dominion. You've got Tom Wood's book, uh, How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization. Um, uh, all those, and you get Mitch Paqua's book on the New Age. So I would freely admit, yes, Catholicism did oppose pagan practices and sometimes eliminated them from culture. And by and large, that was a very, very, very good thing for women and for the advance of human dignity and, and human rights throughout the world. Better believe it. Zach, thanks so much for your call. Some great resources for you there. Again, if you missed any of that, you can check out the podcast by going to EWTN.com forward slash radio. Also, Stark's book, uh, The Triumph of Christianity. Ah, Excellent. All right. Here's a question now from Matt watching us on YouTube. Dr. Anders, can we ask for intercession from souls in purgatory? Um, yeah. So common theological opinion, and that's all we've got on this topic, we don't have a dogma about it, is yes. Yes. And if you think about the logic, souls in purgatory are united to God in charity. Otherwise, they wouldn't be in purgatory. They'd be in hell. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and so they have a prayer life. Right, and obviously the saints in heaven have more efficacious prayers, but uh, but here's a context in which I think it makes sense to pray uh, to the souls in purgatory. Uh, outside the canonized saints, we don't know for sure who's in heaven, who's in hell, and who's in purgatory. But most of the time, we have a you know a, we have a kind of a layman's intuition that you know Grandmama was a pretty good lady. Uh, she died in the faith, and as near as I could tell, with the sacraments, I really don't think Grandmama's in hell. She might very well be in heaven, but of course I don't know that, but I can safely pray to her. She doesn't have to be a canonized saint for me to know that. Maybe she's in purgatory, maybe she's not. Either way, it's going to work out. I'm still going to pray to Grandmama. Very good. Appreciate that. And uh, here is a question now from Dan watching on YouTube. How do Protestants and Catholics disagree on Matthew 18.18, which is, Amen, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Yeah, thanks. So they actually agree more than you might think. And it really depends on the Protestants, of course. Right? Uh -huh. Different Protestants have different views. But let me take one that I know quite well. That'd be John Calvin. So Calvin absolutely believed, absolutely believed that, that the ordained ministry had executive and judicial authority in the church in a way that lay people lacked. And he believed that the interpretation of Scripture, uh, that ruling on judicial matters in the church, that the lay people were obligated to follow the, the deliberations of, uh, of, the, of the clergy, of the ordained class, uh, as authorities, and they were to hear, as he put it, their ecclesiastical pastors as if they were listening to Christ himself, which I might add is a stronger view of ecclesial authority than Catholics take, right? Oh. Um, and uh, you might you can find Calvin's comments on that in, say, for example, his letter to Sadoleto, which I think is 1539-ish, but the Baker Bookhouse has uh, has an edition of uh, the Calvin-Sadoleto exchange, and that quote where 
uh, lay people have to hear their ecclesiastical pastors as Christ himself. That comes specifically from that letter. Of course, if you read the sections on the uh, the, pres- the presbyterate in the fourth book of Calvin's Institutes, he goes into much more detail. Um, Milner has a book on Calvin's ecclesiology that also details that. So you'll find um, this idea of power of binding and loosing as implying a kind of unique uh, 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 magisterial authority. That's not unique to Catholics. Uh, Calvinists would also hold that position. When it comes to the forgiveness of sins, uh, which Catholics do hold that priests have the power to do, the difference with Calvinists and Lutherans is that they they would practice a kind of priestly absolution, but they would see that declaration as just that, more of a declaration in a general sense of God's determination to forgive, right, rather than a power invested in the pastor as such. And so they, they both saw a role for, for confession and absolution in the Christian life and, uh, and had something like a quasi-sacrament there, but whereas a Catholic would think that the priest really does have power in his own name to absolve sins, the priest, the, the Protestant minister would do something more like, uh, well, God forgives you for your sins, a kind of declaration of God's willingness to forgive the penitent soul mm. there as a kind of exhortation meant to comfort rather than an actual power to absolve. But when it comes to ecclesiastical power, ruling, scriptural interpretation, uh, actually more commonality between, between Protestant and Catholic than you might think. Dan, thanks for watching us on YouTube. A quick one from Greg in Southern Connecticut. Can you recommend a book or article that explains the timing of God becoming man through Jesus? I've heard some say the state of the world was poor then, but I can't imagine it's worse than the power of evil in the world today and the sins of man. Love to hear your thoughts on the subject. From yeah, uh, Greg. yeah, absolutely. Greg. But you're, you're ju- you got the justification backwards. Ah. Right? It wasn't that the first century was a, t- a particularly dark time. The church fathers took the opposite view. They, they took the view that say, uh, that say, Bronze Age, ne- say Neolithic and Bronze Age religion were far too unenlightened. They were too superstitious. Hmm. And Irenaeus of Lyon is the man here. If you want to read a, a church father on this topic specifically, you want to read Irenaeus. And what Irenaeus said was that it was necessary for mankind to become habituated to the divine logos before the incarnation could be fruitful. And so that, that meant, in the mind of Irenaeus and most of the Greek fathers, that the world had to be prepared not only religiously through the Jewish faith, but also philosophically through, through Greco-Roman philosophical speculation to, to develop the kind of uh, uh, moral and philosophical sensibility in which the teaching of the Christian faith could take root. So Irenaeus of Lyon is your man. Very good. Greg in Southern Connecticut, so glad that we could answer your question today here on Call to Communion. Hey, Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Check out the podcast, as we were saying earlier. We'll have that posted for you in a couple of hours, ewtn.com slash radio. Look for the words Podcast Central. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. We will see you tomorrow here on Call to Communion. God bless.